Okay, I think we'll get started today. Um, hopefully, people on the outside there can hear me. Is this true? Can you hear? Okay, wanted at least one person to acknowledge me. Um, so grading exams on D12 is not nearly as much fun as grading exams when they're paper copy. It does two things against my normal nature. One, I like a red pen. Can't use a red pen. And second, and this I think is something that may or may not be to your advantage or disadvantage, my preference for decades and the appropriate way to grade an exam is to grade by the question everyone's exam, meaning read the responses to question one for all 16 people, and then question two. That eliminates the bias. However, you cannot do that grading exams on D12, and that's a pain. And I don't like it, but I'm working around it somehow. My challenge is to be consistent grading without introducing a bias because when you read question after question for the same person, you get into interpreting their language patterns or their, you sort of fall into their thought pattern. Whether or not that's a correct interpretation and you're also not able to see how others have responded to the same question. So it's a challenge working through it. I've got three exams out of 16 done. My hope is that certainly before the evening is out or at least tomorrow morning, I will have them finished and posted. But it's taking me longer than I'd like because I don't like the format, but that's me. Okay, um, if you ever get a chance to go, anybody know where this is, this picture? It's the Statue of Liberty. How many of you have paid that much attention to her? Not just this thing standing out there in the harbor, but focusing in. Anybody good at their Roman numerals? July 4th, 1776. So if you had not previously known the Statue of Liberty is holding in her hand the date of the Declaration of Independence. You gotta have a little bit of a magnifier on your lens in order to see it, because usually when you're standing down on the ground looking up at her, it's kind of hard to read that, but it's okay. Okay, so we've been talking about basic chemistry and milk lipids. We're finished with lipids. Now we're gonna move on to the next segment in dairy chemistry. The one that has the potential to be the most complex. And so let's see. if I can find the correct set of slides. The proteins of milk. 
And you may have heard me do that before. Most of you would say it's a protein, correct? But if you think in your mind the proteins, you will spell it right because it violates the normal spelling conventions. It does not go with I before E except after C, right? It sounds like in your brain, there should be two E's there. There's not. It's E-I. When you encounter the proteins of milk, when you encounter casein, it's again going to be E-I. It's not I-N-E, it's not double E. Think about spelling. Spelling does matter. I know many of you don't think so. And when you type it into your phone using both thumbs, which in your case work and in my case don't, your phone doesn't spell check on you. I spell check on you, okay? I want you to be conscious of what we're referring to, the proteins of milk. So there's several subgroups here that we're gonna encounter. But in general, a protein is an organic compound. Organic compound, it contains carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, right? We all agreed with that, and so far, everyone has answered that in that regard on the exam. It's different than other organic compounds in that it also includes nitrogen. Any organic compound which also includes nitrogen in almost all cases will fall under the broader category of being a protein. That's to our advantage. When you go and try and analyze for a protein and differentiate it from a carbohydrate or a lipid, when they're all organic, you've got to pick something that's unique to them. So all we have to do is go look for the nitrogen. You're going to do that in lab a couple of different ways. Determine the nitrogen content in your sample. So all proteins contain nitrogen, they all contain carbon, they all contain hydrogen, they all contain oxygen. What makes proteins up are these basic building block materials known as the amino acids. In your D2L file, under the readings, there's a file called structures and in the structures page or file you'll see a page like this okay you may or may not be able to tell there's 20 amino acids in here the amino acids are all listed and named okay 20 different choices those 20 different choices are common 
whether we're talking about the muscle protein in your sirloin steak, the protein that makes up the fibers in your own hair, or the proteins in milk. It's the same 20 amino acids. It's how we sequence them together. And we have a fairly large number of possibilities to do that. 10 to the 11th. How big a number is 10 to the 11th? A hundred billion. A hundred billion different ways that we can put 20 things together to create the different proteins that have different functions structurally, metabolically, within systems, okay? That's a lot of different ways to put it together. Do you think we're gonna try and memorize 100 billion different combinations? No. We're gonna work on five or six of the principal ones that are very common to the major protein fractions in milk. And even then, we're not going to memorize the sequence, but we're gonna understand the characteristics of some of those individual amino acids. And when we find them, either in clusters or in recurring patterns, they create very specific characteristics of the whole protein. So even though there's a hundred billion possible ways to put it together, there really aren't that many that we actually are gonna to have to consider, okay? So if you like biochemistry, you can memorize the names of all those amino acids. Some of them are going to cause us a lot more concern than others. The ones that tend to cause us concern are the ones that can contain sulfur and the ones that contain ring structures because they're going to impact to a greater extent how that protein fits together in a whole than any of the rest of them. All the rest of them are important, but they're not all equally important. So please look up this page on your structures, read it, try and figure out at least the names of those 20 amino acids, okay? When we add the amino acids together, they always covalently bond one to the next, okay? The primary structure is amino acid one hooked to two to three to four to five. They make a nice long string. That primary structure has a covalently bonded backbone where the amine group of one amino acid, the NH3, always attaches to the carboxylic acid group, the C double bond O, which is a negative charge on the next amino acid. 
So it's always an NH3 to a C00. Hooks together. That creates a backbone structure. The side groups, the 20 different side groups, are going to create the differences in the protein. But the structure, how it hooks together, that primary, is the same. And amine to a carboxylic acid, and amine to a carboxylic acid creates the strand. So we all have a covalently bonded backbone, the primary structure. Because those side groups have different numbers, different characteristics of other elements that are there, they're going to spatially take up different amounts of, of, of area, right? If they've got a fixed ring structure, they're gonna be fairly rigid, not very flexible. They can't move around. If they happen to have one or two chiral carbons in there, they're fairly flexible. We can rotate things and, and make them more compact and push them together, okay? The spatial relationship of those side chains is what determines the secondary and tertiary structures, which become then our defining characteristics of our protein. You with me so far? Mostly? It only gets more fun, okay? Protein chemistry can either be considered lots of fun or a tremendous headache. So what you need to do is put it in as fun, right? It's a challenge, but it's a fun challenge. It's not a headache challenge. So we're looking at the way the 20 different amino acids sequence together spatially A little bit about this page. When you look at the page, I know you most people are not able to see it, but know it's in your structures file. There's four boxes differentiating the types of the side chains based on some of their special characteristics. Okay. All of those amino acids have an amine group, a carboxylic acid group, and a single hydrogen attached to a chiral carbon. And the fourth attachment to the chiral carbon is the side chain, which makes up the specific characteristics of that amino acid. The mean group, single hydrogen, carboxylic acid, and the R group. It's 20 R groups representing the 20 amino acids. I hope that makes sense, right? 
If there were 22 R groups and we called it 20 amino acids, that would not make a whole lot of sense. So some of those R groups are nonpolar. They're hydrophobic. They don't like water. That's an important thing to consider later when we look at how they're going to behave in the overall solution. The solvent in milk is water. If we've got parts of the protein that don't like the water, are they going to be found on the surface of the protein molecule or more towards the interior? They're going to be found closer to the interior because they want to stay away from the aqueous phase as much as possible. The nonpolar group contains the largest number of these amino acids. We have alanine, valine, leucine, isoleucine, proline, methionine, phenylalanine, and tryptophan. The one that we are probably going to talk about the most from its structural significance in a dairy food is proline. When you look at your structures table, proline is unique in that it fixes that chiral carbon. It makes it so that the R group cannot rotate because part of it creates a ring structure with the amine group. And that creation of a ring structure making the chiral carbon no longer free to rotate has tremendous, tremendous impact on how structurally it's going to fit together. So those are the non-polar R groups. Electrically neutral, but polar, meaning there's the charge density is not totally equal in one location. Overall, it's neutral, but there's more positive on one side and more negative on the other. It's polar, but net neutral. Glycine, serine, threonine, cysteine, tyrosine, asparginine, and glutamine. I should have a pronunciation uh, quiz for this, right? What do you think? No? You get them after the first or second time, a little practice. As I said, the ones that we're going to pay special attention to as far as R groups either have ring structures or sulfur. So out of this group, the one that we find the greatest interest in 
is cysteine. Because cysteine has a sulfur. And sulfur inherently wants to associate with sulfur. If you have a cysteine anywhere in your primary sequence and you have another one, they will fold that whole chain back over so the two of them will latch together because the sulfur wants to be next to a sulfur. So every time you find more than one cysteine, you will create loops and bends and create a very distinct secondary and tertiary structure in your protein because the cysteine has a sulfur. So that's, that one's going to make a lot of impact on us. So proline up in this group is our biggest interest. Cysteine in this group, our biggest interest in those R groups. Smallest grouping is the polar negatively charged amino acids, aspartic acid and glutamic acid. They exist, they're there within the sequence. As far as within a dairy food, their impact on structure, behavior of the serum proteins, behavior of the caseins, they're not there in an appreciable quantity to really make it something that we're gonna pay a lot of attention to them. But that is one of the R groups. And the last of the R groups, the positively charged polar groups, lysine, arginine, and histidine. So that's the 20 amino acids. Out of that whole, two we're gonna pay special attention to. We're gonna pay special attention to whenever we find a proline, and we're gonna pay special attention anytime we find a cysteine, because those two specific amino acids are gonna have the most dramatic impact on how the proteins function in any instance in a dairy food. Those two amino acids. Proteins, sequences of amino acids, do not exist truly in solution. You can't put them into the solvent and have them dissociate. They stay as that complex sequence of 50, 80, 200 amino acids in a row, and they stay that way. They don't break apart into the individual amino acids, they do not dissociate and become soluble. They're suspended, colloidally suspended, meaning based on the overall charge density of those individual proteins, if there's enough negative charges, if there's enough positive charges, they'll act like North Pole to North Pole on a magnet, create repulsion and keep themselves 
suspended within the solution. But they're not a part of the solution. They're just suspended there. Please do not ever try and tell me that a protein is part of the solution. I will check that off. There's usually enough charge to have it either show up net negative or net positive. And that repulsion between individual protein chains will keep them suspended within solution. Some of you may remember what I called an isoelectric point back in introductory dairy science. Does anybody remember the isoelectric point of casein? What that means, isoelectric, we got to charge neutral. There's no positives, there's no negatives, they don't create repulsion. All of those proteins can no longer remain in suspension and they precipitate. That is going to be a huge, huge player in the behavior of the proteins in milk. What is the pH of the system? Where are we in relation to the neutral point, the isoelectric point? Do we have positive or negative charges to remain in suspension with the proteins that we have? But they're never truly in the solution. Milk in its native state is slightly acidic. pH, if you'd measure it straight off of the animal, somewhere between 6.65 and 6.8. It's not seven, it's not above seven. But as we do things in process, such as purposely add a microbial culture to create a fermentation. We add a lactic culture, we ferment lactose and create lactic acid and we depress the pH, we change the environment that those proteins exist in. We need to be able to understand what happens to each of the protein fractions when that occurs. So the amino acids are suspended. The pH of the overall solution will have a tremendous impact. I think I'm gonna stop there. A couple of you wanna get yourself all ready to take an exam in another hour. And I've also thrown a lot of just basic starting points at you to get thinking about a protein. We'll come back and discuss some biological functions on Wednesday, and then we'll start wading into a little more material about the importance of 
secondary, tertiary, quaternary structure of proteins, and then begin differentiating the different classes of dairy proteins and why they sit where they do based on their amino acid composition and things of that nature. Are we good? Your brain absorbing it all so far? Mostly. All right. We'll come back to here on Wednesday. Please look up the structures. Get yourself familiar with the R group side chains and why they are different between those amino acids.